Hey friends, I'm Brian Doak and this is George Fox Talks Theology. This season on the Theology Channel, we are going to do a new thing. Instead of being here in the studio, which we are for most of our episodes, as you know, we're going to bring you live theology events from the campus of George Fox University. Some of these might be planned lectures in the evenings and some of these might be a classroom environment um, where we're teaching our students about scripture. But whatever the case, you got to imagine yourself in a live setting with an audience there. And if you're watching these, of course, on YouTube, you can see it. And if you're listening, you can think about it and, pl and place yourself right there in the seat of that audience. Really excited for these because they're all so good. We hope you enjoy. Thanks so much, Joel, uh, for inviting me here. And I don't know if I'll live up to that billing, but we'll, we'll see. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So I want to I start actually when you started in college, back going to Harvard, you were pursuing the sciences, pursuing physics and chemistry, and then you switched to theology and philosophy. So how have each of these spheres, like science and theology, how have they both played a role in your own just vocational journey? Yeah, I mean, I think even before I went to college, when I was in high school, I think that's when it really started. Like, I grew up in a Christian family, um, but I grew up in a Christian family that, um, you know, in a church that we really never talked about these issues with the Bible and science. How do we reconcile the beginnings of Genesis with what we know uh, in our modern day? Uh, and it was just kind of assumed, even when we were studying the book of Genesis, it was just kind of assumed that, oh, these days in Genesis 1 are 24-hour periods, and so the earth is really only about 6,000 years old. Uh, this is sometimes called young earth creationism. Um, and that's all I knew. I didn't know any other Christians who believed anything else. And so when I went to high school, in my public school, uh, and I took biology class, um, you know, there are lots of arguments there, lots of debates there. And I remember when I had this distinct recollection because I love science too, right? So I grew up, you know, really reading on my own a lot about uh, different areas of science. And I was just like, wait a minute, wait, I don't see how these things kind of fit together, right? And I felt so under-informed um, under about these questions. And so I think it's, it's that freshman year in biology class that really kind of began this journey that's now taken decades, actually, of trying to get a better understanding of both scripture theology as well as uh, the scientific questions and scientific evidence uh, that we deal with. Uh, and so like in, in my undergraduate class, um, you know, I, I was reading a lot in addition to taking my science classes. But I remember this one moment that I thought really started bringing them really close together. And you know, it was in a, a biological chemistry class. And we had just gone over um, the kind of molecular structure of what's called a serine protease. It's something that is used in almost all kinds of cells that break down proteins. It's even in your own body right now, breaking down the proteins that you've um, eaten. And, and we were looking at how it works at the atomic level. And I was just so blown away by the elegance and beauty of uh, how it works. And I was just like, I, I was in a lecture hall like you guys are right now, and I, I was just silently worshiping God. And I felt like that was one of those moments in which like, okay, God, I don't know how you brought this system into being. Um, I don't know the details of that, but it is something that you're worthy of worship for. Right? And that's, something, that's where it's like the integration started really deepening, right? Um, and then I went on, and um, this is a long story of how I ended up in theology no, instead of in science. Uh, but in, in, when I went to seminary, I was able to study Hebrew and study biblical interpretation, as well as different theological views on this kind of thing. So that, that really helped in terms of um, fleshing it out some more. And then it, uh, one reason why I went into philosophy 
right? And the specialty of epistemology that I, that I focus on, like, how do we know? How can we know? These kind of things. I think I was really drawn to that because that is kind of like the foundation between like theological questions and scientific questions because in both of these spheres, uh, we're, we're asking questions of what do we know and how do we know these things, right? And then this, this kind of underlying question of how can we kind of bring these things together to kind of have a unified whole in terms of how we look at the world, right? So that, those are just, it's like a brief snapshot in terms of like this trajectory and it's something that I continue to think about uh, and write about actually. It's fascinating that those are not separate questions, right? Like that science, and theology and even philosophy who want to make a distinction between those, they're all asking this fundamental question about how do we know what we know? Right. What's really real? What is truth? And how do we know if something is true or not, right? Yeah. So there's this actually shared common thing. And maybe there's different ways of going about it and different views and paradigms for getting there, but there's still this fundamental almost curiosity about the world that we're in. That yeah, I mean, I think that's a kind of a feature of modern life in just in the last couple hundred years in which it's like before the last couple hundred years, you could truly be a Renaissance man or a Renaissance woman in which you understood all of these different disciplines that kind of addressed a particular question, like this big question of how do we get here, right? Yeah. Um, and so you can actually survey the whole thing, like Isaac Newton could actually do that. But within the last couple hundred years, we've really fragmented, right, in terms of like, okay, you guys focus on theology over there and biblical studies over there, but you guys, you focus just on the science there. And I feel like in some ways we don't really talk to each other enough, right? And have a kind of integrated discussion in terms of looking at all the evidence and looking at all the different kind of facts that pertain to the matter. And so I think that that's one of my goals in terms of as a scholar and as a teacher to try to bring these kind of threads together, right? To try to have a more cohesive and integrated account of reality. So then if it's, it sounds like it's not just, it's not science or faith as if these, these two things that are separated, but that you're seeing some sort of integration that can be brought together. So talk a little bit more about that. Like where do you see the commonalities and then where are some of those distinctions that, well, actually science is over here doing its own thing and faith is answering different kinds of questions. Yeah, so I mean, I think that this, it's, it's actually interesting because if you examine what science does and examine what theology does, there's actually quite um, striking structural parallels, right? Mm. Because in both cases, uh, you're kind of interpreting facts, mm. right? So like, think about science, right? You're looking at the world, you're seeing facts, you're taking observations, you're doing experiments, and then you're doing an interpretation of that, saying, okay, what, does, what do those facts kind of mean in terms of how do we think about the world. So you, you come up with hypotheses and theories, right? So, you know, we can't see, literally see atoms, right? But we believe that atoms are there because that's our best interpretation of the facts that we observe, you know, through our instruments and things like that. But in a very similar way, in theology, we take certain facts, but in this case, a different set of facts, facts that we see in scripture, mm -hmm. facts that we see in reasoning and things like that, and then come up with theories or interpretations of that. And we have kind of rival interpretations of that. And then we kind of try to figure out what's the best interpretation of the facts that we see in scripture or the facts that we see in reason and all these other areas and tradition and various other things, right? So I think that there are definitely um, structural similarities. Mm. Um, I think the difference though is that uh, the, the data that you're working with obviously is very different, right? Um, science is focused on what we can observe with our senses and then the way that our senses are augmented by instruments like telescopes and microscopes and, you know, more advanced things than that. Um, but then in theology, we're, we're t talking about, you know, things that we can see, you know, 
uh, in human conscience, the things that we see in Scripture, the things that we see in the tradition of the church throughout the generations. So I think that it's kind of like what facts that we're looking at um, are, will be different. But I think when we're talking about this kind of integration, then we kind of zoom out in terms of like, oh, we have these different interpretations from Genesis and these different interpretations from what we see out in nature. We zoom out and try to incorporate all the facts, right, and have a, like a broader kind of view of a larger interpretation or larger theory. And I think that's where you can have um, this kind of connection like, and synergy between that. Right? But, it, but I think it is true that um, on both sides, on the theological side as well as on the scientific side, you have different interpretations of, uh, of reality. So like even, even look, here's just one example. Mm -hmm. Even within the secular world of uh, origin sciences, uh, there's, there are different camps in terms of how we think about evolution. Right? So there are different versions of evolution. Uh, and even some, some um, thinkers who are, who are not Christians, who are not theists, but who reject kind of like the mainstream paradigm and come up with a different kind of interpretation of the facts. And similarly with Genesis, um, you know, there's going to be different interpretations of that. And the question in both cases is, what's a better interpretation of these kind of facts and evidence, right? And so that's where the debate goes, right? Both in the scientific side as well as the theological side. So let's go there. Let's talk about Genesis 1, Genesis 2. This is something that the students have read this week, right? Exploring this creation narrative or creation narratives. How do, like what are possible ways for faithful Christians to read the Bible and have that in relation to understandings of modern science and specifically about evolution, right? That seems to be the one that comes up, like how can I reconcile some idea of evolution with what I've read in this particular text. Mm -hmm. Are there different ways of doing this, or how do we understand Yeah, that? so broadly speaking, there are um, three different camps, right, uh, among Christians in terms of how we think about Genesis and origins with regard to the science. Um, and they, and the reason why there are three different camps is because there's actually two kind of distinct questions that will be raised. The first question is, um, you know, is the Earth and the universe old, or is it young? Right? So I, I said when I was growing up, I was kind of raised in this kind of young earth creationist background and thinking that the earth and the universe is only about 6,000 years old, whereas uh, a different answer to that question is the earth is actually really old, like billions of years old, like, and we're in this universe that's like 13 billion years old. So those are radically different answers to that question. But then there's this other question that is kind of distinct from that. It's related but distinct is how did the different species, including us, come into being? Right? And there's this kind of um, uh, this question of, oh, it came out through this process of Darwinian evolution. And then uh, other people would say, no, it didn't come through a process of Darwinian evolution, that God um, specially created species like, in, in, along, the, along the way. And so based on how you answer that, you're going to end up in these three different camps. Right? So the first camp would be a young earth creationism. I already talked about that, that you read Genesis 1 as like six 24-hour days, right? Um, and that God specially created these species, and evolution really didn't have any role. Then you have this other camp called Old Earth Creationism that says, no, the universe is actually much older. It's, it's like you know, billions of years old, but evolution is not capable of bringing about all these species, so that at certain points in geological history, God specially created like the first cell and the first multicellular organism. And then much later, God created the first human beings, right? So that's Old Earth Creationism. And then there's this third camp called theistic evolution. Sometimes it's called uh, evolutionary creationism, that God uses evolution as his kind of instrument for bringing about the world. And that, that 
that camp agrees with old Earth creationism in saying that the universe is really old, billions of years old, but it says actually evolution is capable of bringing about the diversity of species and the human race um, without God kind of specially intervening at different points. And the thing is, like, these three different camps, uh, young Earth creationism, old Earth creationism, and theistic evolution, um, they have followers uh, in terms of uh, uh, Christians all over the world. Um, he, here at Fox, I know professors who fall into each of these different categories, right? And so it's, it's not something you, Fox doesn't require uh, um, professors to sign on to a particular stance on this. Um, but th that's basically the, the landscape in terms of how we think about it. And it really is rooted in these two questions. How old is the Earth? And is evolution capable of bringing about uh, the species that we see? So let me ask maybe more of a textual question, too. It sounds like young Earth creationism reads the days in Genesis 1 in particular as six literal 24-hour days, that kind of a cycle. But it seems like you would have to read it differently to get to old Earth creationism and theistic evolution. Right. So talk about that. Like, What are the differences there? Yeah, this is a fascinating question, because uh, if you actually look at the history of how Christians and, and Jews, actually, because obviously Genesis it comes from the Hebrew Bible. Um, so both Jews and Christians, for over a thousand years before Darwin ever showed up on the scene, they were debating this question, this very question of how do we understand the days in Genesis 1? So they were not being driven by you know, questions of whether evolution is true or not. They were just looking at the text and they were very confused. Right? <laughs> so it's very interesting that the early church father, St. Augustine, who lived you know, in the fourth and fifth century, um, he actually wrote on the days of Genesis um, uh, quite a bit. And, and at some point in the City of God, which is like his magnum opus, um, he actually says, you know, I don't have any idea of what these days mean. It's so confusing. Uh, and it, it's impossible to even imagine what these days are, right? Because, and the reason why is this, like when you actually do a close reading of Genesis 1, it's actually not as straightforward as you might think. Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned, the, oh, the, the six days, or oh, the literal meaning of the tw uh, 24 hours. But actually, if you look at Genesis 1 and 2, I can count at least four different literal meanings of the Hebrew word yom, right, in those two chapters. So, for example, like on the first day, if you remember when you read Genesis, on the first day it says God separated, or God created light, and he separated that from darkness. And then notice what he says, and he called that light day, mm -hmm. right? So that day, which is the Hebrew word yom, it can't mean 24 hours. It, it means like around 12 hours. I mean, depending on where you are in terms of the latitude and the seasons and whatever. But about 12 hours of the day. So that yom means 12 hours. But at the very end of that very same verse, it says, and there's evening and there's morning the first day. And that's yom. And so in that very same verse, it, the word yom literally means different things. They can't mean the same thing. Right? So there's two counts there. Um, at the end of the six days of creation, uh, and after the seventh day, in Genesis, I think, 2-4, it says, um, in the day that the Lord created the heavens and the earth. Mm -hmm. And that word, again, there is the Hebrew word yom. And there, that can't mean 12 hours. It can't mean 24 hours. It has to be more. It has to be at least 144 hours, right? Because that's six times 24. It has to be at least that, maybe more. So there, literally, that can't mean 24 hours. And then even more interestingly, later on in chapter 2, when God warns Adam about eating from the fruit of a, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, mm -hmm. he says, you know, if you eat of it, in that day, you will surely die. Right. And again, that's yom. And so here's a fourth meaning of yom, because it can't mean literally 24 hours there, because he doesn't die in 24 hours. 
right? Later on in Genesis, it says that he lived to 930 years. So early Christian scholars looked at them and said, huh, so that means yom could, could mean 24 hours, but it could also mean maybe 1,000 years because there's other, other passages in the Bible that says, to the Lord, a day is like 1,000 years, and 1,000 years is as a day. So, so it's very interesting, like, this history of disagreement in terms of interpretation of Genesis 1 and the days of Genesis 1, it's something that long predated Darwin. And because there's been this disagreement among Christians and Jews for all these centuries and even millennia about that, it's, abs it's actually not clear just from reading the text by itself what these yom in that second sense literally means. Because literally speaking, yom can mean all these different things, at least four different things. Uh, in the biblical text. See, what's fascinating about that too is like we can just read that and skim over it and just take our own kind of modern interpretations and go, well, yeah, I know what day means. Yeah. But it takes that close reading and paying attention. And even the idea that, so how we seem to measure days has to do with the rotation of the earth around the sun, right? And the spinning of the earth and those types of things. But the earth and the sun aren't made until like, or the sun isn't made until the fourth day <laughs> in Genesis 1. So how is that even measured if it's not measured the same way that we would normally measure in our right. kind of modern scientific age. So these are the kinds of questions. And, and it was, it's fascinating is they aren't scientific questions in the sense that they were, it's pre-modern science. They're Folks are asking the question about the text. Yeah, they're textual questions, right? I mean, I, I'm glad you brought up the fourth day because that's something that Augustine points out. He's like, wait a minute, uh, how can these be regular days? Because if the sun by which we measure evening and morning, if the sun didn't exist until the fourth day, like, what's going on in the first three days, right? So he, that's one of the reasons why he kind of throws his hands up and says, I, I don't know, right? And Augustine is one of the most intelligent and well-read yeah. early church fathers. So, I mean, he's not, a, he's not an idiot, right? right. Uh, so, I mean, so that's one thing he points out. Another thing that Augustine, for example, points out is that this kind of, there's, in Hebrew poetry, uh, Hebrew poetry is not based on, like, sounds, right? In English poetry, as well as Greek and Roman poetry, it's all about kind of the rhythm of accents and, you know, those of you who, who, who study literature. But Hebrew poetry is not like that. Hebrew poetry is more about kind of parallelism, right? Mm. And you see that in the Psalms, right? Like, these kind of repeated things spoken in different ways. And Genesis 1 is very interesting because you have that parallelism. It says, and God said, and God said, and God said. There's evening and morning, the X day, right? The nth day, that kind of thing, right? But what's interesting that Augustine also notices is, again, close textual reading. Um, he notices that the seventh day does not have the pattern of evening and morning the seventh day. Mm -hmm. It doesn't show up. And so he's like, huh. That might mean that the seventh day continues to this very day, right? That might be the implication. And actually, I, I don't have time to go into this, but there's actually some evidence from the New Testament that seems to align with that idea. And so Augustine's like saying, well, if the seventh day actually never ended, and that means that, that, means that maybe those other six days are not 24-hour period. Like we're still living that in this seventh day or age or yes. time or frame of yeah. God's presence and declaring things are good and exactly yeah, yeah. so i mean I, th th I think that that's so fascinating that these kind of small textual details that are really significant cause these kind of disagreements in terms of interpretation um, even among the best kind of biblical scholars throughout the generations and even today like if you go talk to different 
um, folks with PhDs in Hebrew Bible or you know, Old Testament interpretation, they're going to have very different views on what the, what the uh, Genesis 1 days mean. So what would be, what are some helpful ways to think about this then? Like, give us some practical ideas of how should we think about or approach things like Genesis 1 and 2, and maybe what are some pitfalls? Like, what should we not do that might lead us astray? I think that if, we, if, we, if we're cognizant of this kind of historical um, you know, record of these kind of different interpretations, it should lead us to a certain kind of intellectual humility, mm. right? So like, you know, I, I wouldn't dare to think that I'm as bright and well-read as St. Augustine was, right? Even though, okay, I, had, I know a lot more about science than he did, but like the idea is all these brilliant minds throughout the history of the church as well as even in our present day have deep disagreements about this. That means that a good number of them are wrong. Right? I mean, think about that, right? Because the, the fundamentally, whether you're earth, young Earth, old Earth creationist, or theistic evolutionist, at least two of those camps is wrong. It could be that all three camps are wrong, but at least two of them are wrong. So that means I might find myself in one of those camps that is wrong, right? And so one of the problems I see in, in the current day contemporary church is that we kind of demonize people who disagree with us on, on this question. I mean, not everyone does, but many people do. Young Earth creationists say to old Earth creationists, oh, you're just, or theistic evolutionists, you're just compromising, you just want to be accepted by secular people, blah, blah. And then uh, they return the compliment and say, well, you old Earth, uh, you young Earthers, you don't know anything about science, you're just totally ignorant. That, that's just, that's not a charitable and loving way to treat our fellow Christians. I think that uh, we have to have a certain kind of intellectual humility and say, look, this is something that Christians have disagreed with for millennia. And, you know, we may have reasons for uh, favoring one view versus, versus another, but I think that this is where it's kind of like we continue to learn. This is something that I've been doing for decades, learning and studying. And, you know, even though I've grown in terms of my confidence, in terms of my own view, uh, I think I'm still open to the fact that maybe I'm just seeing it wrong. Maybe I'm weighing things um, slightly differently. And I think that that's kind of like that level of humility to say, okay, we disagree on this, but we don't, it's not something that threatens like the core of our faith. It's something that we can disagree with and disagree with each other charitably and humbly and ask God to uh, further give us illumination, further give us understanding. So tell me a bit about then how, how does one hold on to one's faith even with the, uh, the idea that, well, I might be wrong about this particular yeah. thing. Because like, yeah. that can lead to a lot of fear or a lot of sense of like, well, if, if, this, if I'm mistaken about Genesis 1 and 2, do I just toss out the whole Bible? Does any of this any, like, matter? Is it all just opinions or those types of things? Like, how does one hold on to the truth or knowledge, talking about epistemology, <laughs> right, and these types of questions? Like, how do you hold on to something in the midst of all these different seemingly conflicting opinions? Yeah, so I think this is where it's like, I, I, in both science as well as in theology, Something that, something that it took me a long time to realize, like until I got to grad school actually, um, that not everything is as important as other things and not everything is as clear as other things, right? So, so here's just one example in the scientific realm. Like it used to be that scientists believed that the universe was eternally old, that there was no beginning to the universe, right? But nowadays that, that uh, because of all the evidence that we see, like that's something that has really been overturned. Like, scientists do believe that the universe began at a certain point, right? And so this idea, um, that's a lot more certain 
than exactly how the universe came to be, or exactly how species came to be, right? And I think similarly in, in scripture and in theology, there are certain things that are more unclear and certain things that are more clear, right? Mm. And we have to acknowledge that. And the thing is, I think that like, there's this uh, idea that the things that are clearer are the things that are actually more important, mm. right? So like, you know, here's just another theological debate that just opens up a can of worms. <laughs> like this question of like predestination and free will, that's another thing I'd love to think about and talk about. But, but this, that question is unclear in scripture, I would argue, right? And mm. it's something that Christians have debated, but I think if it were really important, right, for our faith, for our life, then it's something that God would make absolutely clear. You know what I'm saying? So I, th I think it's a trust that like the things that really are important are the things that are clear that we can have stronger confidence in. And so with regard to Genesis 1, it's like, okay, exactly how God created these things or how long that took and things like that, that's maybe a little clear, ambigu uh, uh, ambiguous in certain ways. But the things that are clear in Genesis 1 is that there is a God. That there is a single God. He's not rivaled by any other God. That he created us in wisdom and love and he cares for creation and creation is very good. Those are the things that are just unambiguous. Those are things that are absolutely clear. And I think, I think coming back to that question of um, being afraid, I think this is something that many Christians, they're afraid of science. They're worried that if they learn more about science, they're going to have to kind of drop their whole faith. But I think the fact that there are these three camps of, you know, between young earth, old earth, as well as theistic evolutionists. And each of them, I know personally people who have PhDs in each of those camps, right? The fact that there are these other camps should be a comfort to you, mm. right? Because even if you grew up, let's say, as, as I did as a young earth creationist, and you end up being an old earth creationist, or you end up being a theistic evolutionist, it doesn't mean that you've left the faith. It means that mm. you've, you've joined just this other community of Christians who hold to theistic evolution, or who hold to old earth creationists, and so I think that should give your mind a little bit of ease, right? In the sense that like, you're not the only one who's wrestled with these questions and there are communities of faithful followers of Jesus who hold on to um, each and every one of those views that, that I laid out. Well, even in here, like our, our course on Theo 101, one of the main things we talk about is a virtue of faith, this idea of trusting in divine promises and obedience to divine, divine commands. And it's, it is a faithful step to, to look at the text, to come to some sort of conclusion about it, and then to, to not do it with blindness or a lack of intellect. Like, incredibly intelligent people are wrestling with these same things, and then saying, I might be wrong, and yet I can still move forward and hold a particular position, make a, con a statement or have a conviction about these particular things, and still be faithful to God, mm -hmm. and faithful even to the vocation of whether that's theology, philosophy, science, or whatever, mm -hmm. that God is active and at, at work in those particular ways. I want to turn now to have you guys talk. Right here in the front, start us off. Hey, so um, a big question that I had after hearing you talk, um, the way that you describe theistic evolution kind of sounds like God set the earth in motion and then evolution kind of took care of the rest. But to me, the beauty of Genesis 1 is God's direct involvement in our creation and him making everything. So do you believe that theistic evolution somewhat undermines God's power and capabilities? Okay, so let me be a devil's advocate because I'm not a theistic evolutionist. I'm, if, if I were to choose one of those camps, I would say I'm an old earth creationist. 
but one that allows a certain amount of evolution, but not everything. So this is, a, incidentally, I'm not Catholic, but this is actually the official position of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church says evolution has happened, but the two points in which they'll insist that God actually specially did things was at the first life, the first cell, and then at human beings, right? And so I think I would have something like that. I think probably God did other things in the, in the meantime as well, but like, just like microevolution, like it's, we're seeing it happen right now. Look at COVID, right? Like the Omicron variant. You can actually look at the mutations that it's had since 2020, right? And you can actually see evolution happening. And it's much better at infecting us than these earlier variants, right? So, so I think a certain degree of evolution has happened. But I think uh, personally myself, uh, because of many reasons I could, I have like a whole hour lecture I could talk about this. But for, for chemistry reasons at the first cell, as well as like philosophical reasons about consciousness and free will and the soul at for the first human, I think that I agree in the sense that God is necessary to kind of do something special at those points. But let me play the devil's advocate because I have friends of mine who are theistic evolutionists, you know, who are PhDs and things like that. And they would say actually, it's, it, oh, anyway, they would say that in, in a different way, if God could create a system that would auto-generate these kind of living things, it actually is even more kind of reflecting the power of God, the wisdom of God, right? It's kind of like, instead of creating a game, let's say, um, I'm going to create an algorithm that creates the game for me, right? In some ways, that's actually even more clever and wiser, right? Or, or another, here's another example. Think about the iPhone, right? The iPhone is a very complex piece of machinery and things like that. And so in some sense, that's like, a, it takes a great deal of intelligence and wisdom to create the iPhone. But in, in a different way, what Apple does is it actually creates the entire infrastructure, the machinery, the engineers, the supply chain to produce all those parts to bring it about, right? So in some sense, making the machinery that makes the iPhone is even more complex and more sophisticated than the phone itself, which is kind of amazing, right? So the theistic evolutionists would, would come back at you and say, well, yes, if God specially created Adam and Eve or specially created the cell, that, that's wonderful and great and awesome and powerful. But if God could create a system that creates those things for him, that's even more powerful. Do you see, like, it's a different kind of power and wisdom. Again, I'm not a theistic evolutionist. I'm just saying you can see where these, these different camps might disagree, and they're appealing to different aspects of God's power and wisdom. But that's a great question. Thank you. Great question. Who's next? Um, my question is, is we've discussed uh, the uh, different variations of how we interpret the word day mm -hmm. in the book of Genesis. Uh, my question is, is does that uh, form of time um, affect um, characters in the book of Genesis? So we see characters like um, Adam living to 930 yeah. years old, yeah. and then we see Noah living 950 years old. Is that, could that also uh, be how we interpret um, day and night, and possibly if the earth was possibly closer to the sun and time was going faster, and that's why these characters are going at like an expensive amount of years compared to like us living at like 100. Yeah, that's a really fascinating question. Like, and, and, and in fact, if you actually uh, graph, I've done this, if you actually graph the ages of these genealogies you know, in Genesis, you actually see that it fits an exponential decay curve. 
So you start out with all these people who are living with 900 years, and they slowly have slower, uh, lower and lower uh, lifespans until you get to like Abraham's day. So it's kind of an interesting kind of um, mathematical relationship there. Um, but I think that there's something else going on there with regard to genealogies. And, and people have proposed like, well, maybe the, the days were different, maybe the years were different, that kind of thing back then. But I think what's interesting is there are other ancient Near Eastern documents that also have very similar kind of things. So I'm thinking about there's this one Sumerian kinglet. Su Sumer was this ancient um, uh, kingdom in around Babylon or modern-day Iraq, right? Um, and they had these lists of the kings. And what's interesting is they also talk about a worldwide flood. And what's interesting is the reigns of the kings in their list before the flood are much, much longer. I think they're like in the thousands of years or tens of thousands of years than the reigns of their kings after the flood. So I think there is something going on there in terms of like these ancient Near Eastern um, genealogies or lists of kings. Like either maybe something's going on with regard to the world in terms of like the days being different or something like that, or the years being different. Although I kind of doubt that because if, if we were closer to the sun or something like that, we'd all burn up, right? I mean, if you think global warming's bad now, I mean, if we were much closer to the sun, we'd, we'd, we'd really be toast. Um, but I think there's this other aspect, and if you're interested, you can email me, I can email you this paper. There's this paper that this one uh, uh, woman scholar wrote that actually showed that all those years in the genealogies, are actually, you can decompose them into factors of 60. And what's fascinating about that is 60 was the base of the Babylonian mathematical system. You know, we have like base 10, you know, you count on 10 fingers, and there's binary, which is base two, but the Babylonians have base 60. And that's actually where we get 60 minutes in an hour, 60 degrees, you know, in a, in a uh, second, second, or, anyway, it's, you know, the, the angles and things like that. Um, and so she actually ran the numbers and said that um, each of those numbers, like 930, could be decomposed into factors of 60. And the probability that that could happen in a random kind of way would be like astronomical. So in this paper, it was, uh, they were convinced that there's some kind of, kind of numerological significance to these um, year, years that were put in the, um, king, the genealogy list. So I think that we don't, we're in a very different culture in terms of understanding what the text says. But I think that, that the, the, the ages in these genealogies, I think there's some kind of hidden significance there that we don't fully grasp because we're not living in that culture where we're using base 60, right? I mean, that's just kind of weird, right? So um, I don't know if that gives you any further light on that, but um, those are some considerations I have about these dates and ages. I'll pick up on that in just a, like what you were saying, Dr. Choi, about when we're reading the Bible, we have to recognize that it is an ancient text from a totally different culture. And we talked a little bit about this, like it's like traveling to a new country and another time and another place. And so the, the way that the text is constructed and how it's speaking to its original audience is also gonna be something that's remarkably different. So if we take 21st century American westernized scientific frameworks and place that on the text and read it through that lens solely, it might distort what's actually being said there. We might miss something significant about the text because we've been looking at it through our particular lens and our particular culture and time frame. We have time for some more questions, so let's keep going. Um, so I'm sorry to say this, but like, where is your faith? Um, you said a lot of scientific things, um, but I'm just having trouble because like the scripture, you said a couple things of scripture, but there's a lot of people nowadays that have been basing um, and the church has been falling away from the trueness. Um, and so, yes, you were going back to Genesis, 
but Jesus reestablished the church and ultimately Jesus is the new way in the life. And so um, kind of scientifically, if you think about it, like when Peter, he went to walk on water, he didn't spread out his toes to get more surface area. He had like, the reason why he fell through the waters was because he doubted in his faith with God. And so I think ultimately it's like the six days, yes, that is kind of cool. Um, but it's really, it's like, hey father, I don't understand, but I trust you. And so science kind of falls within that. Science does become, um, it relates to religion, and so it backs up faith, but I don't think we should put God in a box of science. We should think science in a mindset of our own faith and not put faith in the, in the mindset of science. Yeah, so I think that uh, it, that's not uh, a problem that I have. I have no problems uh, believing in miracles. That's, that's not... That's not the reason why I'm an old earth creationist, right? Because like, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe all these things. I've actually even seen in my own life miraculous answers to prayer. Like I know uh, a friend of mine who was a pastor's wife, she had a brain tumor in the middle of her head. And the, the, she had four young kids and uh, she had no idea what to do. And the doctors were saying, this is inoperable. We don't know what to do. But so she sent out this email to all her friends and family and her church around the country. And we were just fervently praying for her. And amazingly, at the next scan, all that was left was a hole where that tumor was. It disappeared. The doctors had no idea how that happened, right? It was just, a, just full of fluid. And of course, her and her husband were like, we know what happened. God answered prayer. So don't get me wrong. I'm not someone who rejects the possibility of miracles. I think there's nothing you can show. There's no way through science that you can show that miracles can't happen, right? That's not the reason why I, I interpret Genesis the way I do. The reason why is because I think there's the scientific evidence that we see for an old earth, that's extremely difficult to ex explain, have a coherent interpretation of them. Here's just one example, starlight, right? Um, even young earth creationists admit that there are stars and galaxies, galaxies that are millions if not billions of light years away from us, right? I think Andromeda galaxy is like 25 million light years, right? And so the light that we're seeing, because light has a finite you know, speed, the light that we're seeing from Andromeda left Andromeda 25 million years ago. Uh, and young Earth creationists, they actually don't dispute that it's actually that far. They, they agree with that distance. And so the question is, if that's true, how could that light have gotten to us? Because if the universe is only 6,000 years old, there hasn't been enough time for the light to get to us. And that is a huge problem, actually, for young Earth creationism. Now, you know, there may be some way to get around it. Uh, I have yet to see an interpretation of that, those particular facts with regard to starlight that actually makes sense with both the science and with Genesis. So that's one of the reasons why I go that way. Not because I don't think that God is all-powerful, not because I don't think miracles happen, because I've seen them happen, but it's because what's the best interpretation of both the scientific facts as well as the scriptural facts that coheres and, and, and is integrated? Mm -hmm. Did you want to say something? Good. It looks no, like you're good. Well, I did. The one thing I have heard about the young earth creationists and why that might be is that God created it that way and kind of a, created these stars to seem like they were 25 million years oh, old. Oh, yeah. So that, that, that's the, I think, so I was one of my friends from uh, PhD, he has a PhD in philosophy as well. He said, and he's a young earth creationist. He, he actually admitted to me when we were in grad school that this, this apparent age thing is the only thing. So like, the only way to really solve this problem thing. He said, you know, when Adam and Eve were created, did they have belly buttons? 
right? Right. Because, you know, if they have belly buttons, it would seem that, oh, you know, uh, they were born from a woman, but in fact they weren't, right? So, like, what's wrong with God creating starlight in transit, right? Um, that, you know, so, so even though it hasn't, we haven't had 25 million years for that light to get here, why could, couldn't God do that? And God certainly could do that, but I think the theological question is, why would he do that, especially for stars and galaxies that are not even visible to our naked eye? What function would that serve? Wouldn't it actually make more sense for him to create light from, in transit from stars that are actually visible and are closer? So I think that, that question, because it seems that, like, here's an example, like stars that go supernova that are over 100,000 light years from us. So that means that star has never actually existed, right? Because the light of the supernova was created in transit, but there was never a star there that blew up. For a lot of old earth creationists and theistic evolutionists, they would, that seems to be almost kind of deceptive on the part of God. Mm. Why would God create light that looks like supernovae that never actually happened because they're so far away? Does that, I don't know if that yeah, makes any sense. Yeah, it's raising some good questions here. Yeah. Please, please, please give a round of applause for Dr. Isaac Choi. Thank you. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews, and we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.